I do welcome you this morning. If you came with a Bible or if you use a Bible app, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. In the first service, unfortunately, I started at verse 12, only I didn't really start at verse 12, I started at verse 13 and had everybody all messed up. So you, by being here at the last service, it's already been corrected. But we're starting our new sermon series and we're looking at the passage called The Suffering Servant. It begins in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. It goes all the way through Isaiah 53. We're looking at the first section of it today, and so we'll be looking, and our text will be taken out of verses 13 through 15. But first, I want to talk about job descriptions. Now, maybe you came here this morning and you thought, I need to get a new career. So you came to the right place. I can help you. Because I've been looking at job descriptions. That doesn't mean that I'm going to take a different job, but sometimes I've had to write job descriptions for a job. The only job description I ever had to do was that of a pastor, and somebody gave me like four pages out of this book called The Book of Discipline, and it's way more than any of us could do. So we kind of pick and choose what we figure we can do out of it. But if you think of job descriptions, if you've ever either received one when you're looking at a new job or maybe you prepared one for someone else, you know that job descriptions are very important, right? Got to know what you're doing. So I've got a couple career changes for you. You could perhaps be a golf ball diver. I bet you didn't even know that job existed. It is basically a professional recycler. You will retrieve golf balls from bodies of water then clean, then repackage, then resell them. You will earn 10 cents per golf ball. You can make upwards $100 an hour. If that's not good enough, you could try this job description. Online dating ghostwriter. You work as a modern-day Cupid. You earn $900 a month by writing profiles for people to post on their online dating sites. You will help clients increase their chances of finding the perfect match. Now, if you do that for a while and you get tired and you're a woman, the next one is exclusive. Guys, don't apply. You can become a professional bridesmaid. Similar to a wedding planner, you will be a major part of a couple's big day. You are a friend for hire, an organizer, a confidant, and then here's the most important thing you have to know about this job, you become a non-complaining member of the wedding party. <laughs> Do I have any takers on any of these yet? I have two last ones. A pet food taster. We all like our animals, don't we? A pet food industry is a multi-million dollar industry, so you will have to assess products on their packaging, their smell, their nutritional value, but then you also have to taste for both taste and texture. Now, our last one that you could be is a worm picker. Now, I saved the best for last, because worm pickers, you get to enjoy the great outdoors collecting earthworms. The earthworms get sold directly to be used as bait, or some of them are contracted to fishing companies, and some of them also get sold to universities and other institutions for research. No qualifications required. That means we can all be worm pickers here. You'll get paid per thousand worms. That's a lot of worms. 
Why do I say this? Well, I have a Bible study that I'm involved with on Friday, and there's a guy in the Bible study who recently gave his life to Christ, reading the Old Testament for the first time, and on Friday, I got to lead the Bible study. And anybody who knows me knows that if I'm going to preach a passage next Sunday, I love to test it on a Bible study ahead of time, and I usually get some of my best ideas there. And I was explaining how Isaiah wrote this passage hundreds of years before Jesus. And it became this suffering servant passage, a prophetic view of what the Messiah would be. And it was an unusual passage, and Pastor David talked about that on Wednesday, because it was so different than what people thought about of being faithful to God. Within the Old Testament, there's always this idea that if you're faithful, things will go well, and now all of a sudden, all of these difficult things that this Messiah is asked to do. And without missing a beat, because again, it's written hundreds of years before, Dave spoke up and he goes, it's like a job description for the Messiah. And I thought, that's a brilliant way of looking at this. Think of, as we're going through this in the next few weeks, that this is what was written ahead of time, and these are the things that Jesus fulfilled. He also was certainly well aware of what he was doing, and if there's anything I want us to hear about Jesus, he was intentional. He didn't just do things accidentally. He is our Messiah. Hundreds of years after Isaiah the one that our text says is, Behold my servant, Jesus comes on to the scene as the Messiah. The Messiah is the one that people had now been looking for because a Messiah is an anointed one. That's different, though, than an employee. When we hire somebody, they get a paycheck. When you become the anointed one, it would be like being the king in the ancient world, and they would pour oil on the head. That would be the anointing. So everybody would see that event and they would say, that person has been anointed to lead our country, only now we're told that the Messiah will be anointed to save the world, to guide us and to lead us. More than just an employee, but one who had a very important task to do. Today, I'd like us to consider the difference between God's job description for the Messiah versus maybe what we would have come up with. Because I'm going to tell you that as we look at what Jesus came here to accomplish, a lot of times it's very different than how we would have thought of it as, or a lot of times of what we try to make Jesus into. But why is this important? It's certainly important so we have a good understanding of what Jesus was about, but it's also important for another reason. If this was Jesus' job description, if this was a prophecy of the things he was going to do, we also have a job description. Did you know that? Every one of us has a job description as Christians. It's called the person Jesus. We follow him. He's our job description. We learn to live like him. We learn to act like him, to think like him, to love like him, to be gracious like him. And if we have an improper understanding of who Jesus is, then we have an improper job description, and we're just going to be left to our own devices. And I'm sorry, left to our own devices. We can come up with some pretty crazy things. We need this, and I suggest our world needs this. You see, a Messiah wasn't only needed in the first century, a Messiah is needed today. Because when you think about a job, you create a job if there's a need, and then you create the job description out of it. Well, this world needs a Messiah more than ever. I'm going to say that again. This world needs a Messiah more than ever. People are lost, people are struggling. 
And so as we hear what was predicted about our Savior and what he lived out, we start to say, how do I live according to that? And, and if that's who I'm following, am I doing a good job or where do I need to make a course correction? So we start with a job description. I suggest the Messiah's job description. And the first thing we read about his job description is verse 13. It's about success. And isn't that what you want? Didn't you even notice on the job descriptions that I was reading that, that there was some success? They will tell you sometimes, like, what are you going to earn if you take this job? Well, right here in our text, in verse 13, we're told about the success of the Messiah. We're told, and I'm going to read first from the New Living Translation, because it's more how we often hear it. See, my servant will prosper, or my servant will be successful. He will be highly exalted. In the English Standard Version, it says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Notice there's two words that get used here, and they get used interchangeably. They're usually translated success, but it's also translated wisely. Because here's what we misunderstand about success. We have human success, in the Bible, success is very different than how we think of it in 21st century America. We define success as a nice house, a good job, a lot of money in the bank, all of these worldly successes. Scripture is very clear that God's vision of success is wisdom and living wisely, living according to God's standards and God's way of living in this world. Isaiah was clear that God's servant will live in such a way that it will be wise and it will be successful, and so much so that he'll be lifted up, that others will see him. Now, we know that that's a veiled allusion to the cross where Jesus is ultimately lifted up, but there's a lot of other ways in which Jesus is lifted up in our world and people look at him. I often think of the book that was written a few years ago. It was about non-Christians, and it said, they like Jesus, it's a church they have a problem with. That's a humbling thought. When the person of Jesus is lifted up to people and they see how he lives, it's a very attractive thing because it's like, is that really how God wants us to understand what life is in this world? So the servant, the Messiah, our Savior Jesus, knew what he was doing. It wasn't accidental. He knew what he was doing and he did it the right way. Now, if you've ever had a job when you didn't know what you're doing, it's a pretty frustrating thing. Have you ever been there? You're like in the middle of something and you don't know what to do. I have one distinct time when I was a kid. I was probably about eight years old and we were visiting my uncle and aunt in Nova Scotia. And my uncle was a piano builder, tuner, and rebuilder. Now, because of that, his kids, I'm sure he spent a lot of time helping his kids know what to do to help him. And so one day, my cousins and I went to visit the uncle and we all got busy. It was like this big warehouse, and these pianos were all ripped apart, and we had these piano actions laying out there, and there were some pliers, and the kids started doing something. So I picked up a pair of pliers, and I tried to do what everybody else was doing. I didn't know what I was doing, but I just tried to fit in. After a while, my mother walked in and said to her brother, wow, it looks like you have the kids really busy. I hope they're helping. And he said, yeah, all but Stanley, he doesn't know what he's doing and I burst into tears, because I didn't know what I was doing. I, hadn't had, I had no job description. I was just a little eight-year-old trying to follow what everybody else was doing. Well, Jesus didn't live his life like that. He knew what he was doing. He had a purpose with everything. 
So as you read the Gospels and as you get to know this Messiah, this one who's prophesied about, this one who has his most unusual job description, don't think that he just accidentally is going through life. And so there's so many places in Scripture we could turn and look, but I'm just going to take you one place, Matthew chapter 8. You don't need to turn to it, but if you want to go back and look at the passage later, that's great. We're told about a day that Jesus comes across a guy who's got leprosy. Now, put yourself in the first century. That means if a person has leprosy, somebody stands out in front of them and yells, leper, and everybody runs away. And the guy cries out to Jesus, Jesus, would you heal me? Now, of course, you go, well, well, yeah, Jesus heals him. No, Jesus went over and touched him and healed him. That's living a different way, folks. That's not how we normally live. And that's not how people in the first century lived. Because he had a different version of success. His success was to live according to how God wants us to live. And then the Bible tells us right after that, I'm sure they're watching, they're going, wow, this guy's different. Along comes a Roman guard. Now, the Romans were the occupying troops, so they weren't very popular. In fact, they were downright hated. And they wanted to get rid of the Romans because they were living in Palestine and they wanted their own independence. And this Roman soldier comes up to Jesus and says, I'm a commander and a guy in my army is sick. Would you pray for him? You can imagine what everybody's saying. Yeah, I don't think so. Like, go mind your own business, go back to Rome, but not Jesus. He prays for him and the soldier's healed. And then, if that's not enough, Jesus looks at everybody and says, I hope you all saw what we just went through today. And then I quote him, For truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel that has as great a faith as this Roman soldier. Because that soldier went with humility and was able to see who Jesus was. And Jesus, frankly, didn't care when he upset people. He didn't care if he's telling the truth. He didn't care if anybody else didn't want to hear the truth because he wanted God's kingdom proclaimed in this world and he wanted us to learn to live a different way. He wasn't making people happy, but he wasn't trying to. Because remember, we didn't get to write the job description for the Messiah. God did. And he was making God happy. So if that's the first part of Jesus' job description, what does it say to us? What's our job description? Well, I asked the question, what would life look like if you and I rated ourselves according to God's success instead of human success? Hear that? How different would our lives be if we quit worrying about worldly success and God's wisdom instead? And we started putting that into practice. I was a college student, and Regina always knew where to get a hold of me. I was her boyfriend, and and she never had to go looking for her because, no, I wasn't in the library. I was on the basketball court. I think I would have had better grades if I would have spent more time in the library, but that never went across my thinking. So every day in the afternoon, I'd go play basketball and play pickup games, and it was always a lot of fun. I didn't play on the college team, but I played on InterVarsity, and it was just an awesome time to get to be together with friends and make new friends. And one day, a guy comes and says, hey, you guys are playing basketball. Can I join you? And I still remember looking at him thinking, this will be fun. He had like old tattered tennis shoes. He had these weird clothes that he was wearing and shorts. And I was like, those aren't even gym shorts. I think he had regular cutoffs. He'd cut an old pair of blue jeans. And to make matters worse, he didn't have athletic socks. He was wearing dress socks. 
I go, obviously, this guy doesn't know much of anything until we started playing, and I guess you would say he cleaned the clock with us. I mean, he just mopped us up off the floor for the next hour. I got to know him later, and I discovered that he had been quite a star high school basketball player, and same thing in college. And then as I got to know him more, I also discovered something else about him. He just returned from the mission field because he had been a missionary to Sierra Leone, Africa for years. And as I talked to him more and got to know him over the years to come, I discovered that my friend Bill didn't really care about human success. He had learned to give up everything in life. He gave up everything. He said, when I went out as a missionary, my human goods didn't matter to me anymore, so I don't care what pair of shoes I wear. And so I put on dress, or dress socks when everybody else was wearing athletic socks. It just doesn't matter. Because his job description was Jesus. He wasn't trying to impress a bunch of college students. He was just living the right way. What is our success? Can we look at Jesus and the wise way in which he lived and how he cared for everyone and lived differently? Or do we constantly get caught up in worldly success? Because the second thing we start learning about his job description, it's not human appearances that matter, not just in success, but in anything. And so the second word I want us to hear on his job description that becomes ours is the word semblance. I like that word. In fact, I looked at all the different translations, and I chose the ESV because it used the word semblance instead of appearance. So I'm going to read verse 14 out of our text. Many were astonished at his appearance. He was so marred. Beyond human semblance, and his form be that beyond that of the children of mankind. Yes, most people say his appearance but the ESV says semblance, and there's a reason for that, because semblance is the outward appearance or form of something, especially when the reality is different. And that's what the text is trying to tell us about this Messiah. What you see on the outside, don't judge it, because it's a whole lot more than what you see on the outside. And if you just look at the Messiah on what he looks like on the outside, he's not trying to impress anybody anyhow. And no, he's not going to make the front of a GQ magazine. And if you're around on the first century, everybody wouldn't be saying, look at that cute guy, Jesus. I wish I could get to know him better. Because that's not what it mattered to him. What mattered to Jesus and the orders that he had was how he lived his life. That is God's job description for the servant and folks for all servants. God's servant doesn't try to impress the servant is an inside job. And that's why as we read the story of Jesus and we get through Holy Week and we come to the moment on the cross, people couldn't even look at him. He'd been beaten, been dragged through the city streets, and he was nailed to a cross. And people weren't in Jerusalem that day saying, wow, let's go see this person. They literally turned their face away because Jesus wasn't here to help us understand we need to get our outsides better. Now, there's a place for looking good at the outside. I know that because I'm getting ready for Sunday morning. This morning, I put on my running shoes, and I look in the mirror, and I go, they don't really match. I need to change. And then I thought, isn't this great? I just violated my sermon. I cared about what I looked like. <laughs> but I still put my wingtips on. Lent is a time to think about Jesus' appearance and his suffering 
and how he didn't care what was on the outside, but it was who he was and how he treated people. That's why far too often we think about Jesus with all the crowds following him. And he certainly had those moments. But, you know, there were times when nobody followed Jesus. There were times when people just turned and ran away and thought, who is this guy? I don't want to be around him. Because, again, Jesus wasn't about outward appearances. Amen? I'm going to say that again. Jesus wasn't about outward appearances. Now, too often, we think if we're going to be Christ-like, then we have to have multitudes around us. But that's not true because Jesus didn't have multitudes around him a lot of times. When he was being his faithful servant and loving people and teaching and doing things for others, people turned and ran away from him. They go, I don't like this guy. If you don't believe it, look at John chapter 6. It's a moment in which we get what we like to call incarnational theology. Incarnation means God coming to earth. He's incarnate, God in human form. But John 6 also is a time in which Jesus takes incarnational theology and shows how it applies to us, that God starts working through us and the divine in us starts coming out more. Not that we become little gods, but with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we start changing and being transformed and we get to be called the body of Christ because we live as Christ in this world. Only Jesus in this time had a whole bunch of people around him And all of a sudden, he's teaching the crowds, and he goes, and he says, you know, folks, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you don't have any part of me. You think that gathered people? That is not how you gather a crowd. And in the first century, everybody turned and walked away. And now there's only the 12 disciples. In John chapter 6, the disciples said to him, and I paraphrase, Jesus, we were doing really well. Like, I could have taken up a collection, and we could have built a church in your name. We could have put a statue in your name. We could have have had a memorial garden better than Faith Community Church. But instead, they think you're weird. They don't like those words. Do you think you could tune it down a little bit? And so Jesus says, how many people are there? Twelve. He goes, why don't the twelve of you leave also? Peter, never one to let somebody else speak first, says, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. Amen, folks. Jesus was truthful in those words. He didn't care if it repulsed people. Because that's what we do today. We now understand what he was talking about. He was saying, unless you literally take him into yourself and you become more Christ-like, you're not really following him. They struggled with the words, we struggle with the concept. It's just as hard for us today. Because at those moments when I don't want to be Christ-like, my Savior says, you need to be more like Jesus. At those moments when I don't want to treat somebody the way Jesus would treat them, let's take Vladimir Putin. You know, the guy doesn't make any of us very happy. What does Jesus tell us to do for our enemies? Love and pray. Them's hard words, folks. But that's the Savior that we serve. That's the Messiah that we have. He's the one who followed the job description and lived it out. Years ago, as a young pastor, and you know when you're a young pastor, there's older pastors who want to help you. I do the same thing. We want to have a little bit of influence to pass on. Now, this guy got to be a good friend of mine. But I noticed something about him. He was always the best-dressed man in every room. 
This was one slick-looking guy. He always had a three-piece suit on. He always had penny loafers with real pennies in them. I actually went to the store once to try to find penny loafers. I couldn't find any that fit, but only because of my friend. He had a handkerchief, you know, the nice little handkerchief that matched his tie. And he always had a gold button. Then I started noticing that, please understand, I served a church of 25 people at this point. We were meeting in the basement of a church we couldn't afford to heat upstairs, so we were happy to have the lights on. And this guy had a nice-sized church with a bunch of people, and I started noticing the men in his church all dressed like him. And one day I was talking to him, and he said something that I will never forget. Now, obviously, he didn't think I looked as good as he did, and he was trying to help me to learn to be more like him. And he said, you know, Stan... I want you to understand something. If Jesus was here today, he would dress just like me. I didn't have my master's degree yet in theology, but I knew there was something wrong with that. (laughs) Really, he would dress just like you. And he said, yeah, as Christians, we need to show the world we're successful. We need to be the best dressed and have the nicest cars and look better than everyone else. Now, God has a sense of humor because the guy who followed him also became a friend. This was not a Methodist church. It was a different denomination. And I got to be friends with the person who followed him. The guy who followed him was one of the most humble people I've ever met. And another pastor in their denomination had a kidney disease and needed a kidney. And they couldn't find a donor. And the pastor who followed the guy who said, you want success? You got to look like me. The next pastor donated a kidney to save the life of a friend. You see, that's success, folks. Not serving ourselves, not looking great on the outside, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that shouldn't be our focus. What about our job description? What do others look at when they look at you and me? What do they see? Do they see us trying to be like everybody else, trying to put up a a bright face on every situation and act like everything's okay when everything's not okay? Because you see, learning to be okay, learning to not be okay when things aren't okay is sometimes what we need to be able to do as Christians, to just be able to be honest in who we are and truthful about our lives. Because when we learn to be okay not being okay, it allows others to know that only God makes us okay. Because there's times when we just have tears and hurts and pains, and we are not here to fake it for everyone else, and nor was Jesus. And when Jesus was sweaty and hanging on a cross and bloody and hungry and alone, he didn't try to be somebody he wasn't. We need a little less impressing of others. And that's why people wear all kinds of shirts to show off their favorite teams. The other day I was with Regina. She's a big Celtics fan, if people don't know. And she saw somebody else who was a Celtics fan, and they were comparing their Celtic shirts. And I thought, you know what we need to do is we need to start being Team Jesus. Doesn't mean you got to put a Team Jesus shirt on, but we need to be Team Jesus. Because I don't think the world really needs more. I'm sorry, I love my wife, but they don't need more Celtics fans or Patriots fans or Red Sox fans or anything else. But man, this world is hungry for Christians who put on Christ every day. Amen? Amen. And we learn to live like the one who lived different than us, who loved people who were unlovable, who touched lepers, who forgave people, who went to Roman soldiers and helped them. 
Thank you. Because <laughs> that's who Jesus wants us to be. Jesus wants us to understand that we are far too much caught up in the stuff that doesn't matter. And yet our Savior had a job description, and he followed the job description. And the last thing about it is this word sprinkling. Sprinkling. Verse 15 says, he shall sprinkle the nations, and the kings shall shut their mouths in front of him. Sprinkling is an Old Testament concept. And I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in the temple. And the priest takes blood off of an animal, and he sprinkles it on the altar. And then the Bible teaches us that others were sprinkled because this sprinkling was a purification rite. It meant you were forgiven. It meant grace was extended to you. But here was the problem. Only certain people got that to happen to them. You had to be on the in crowd. If you were on the inside, then you would be the sprinkled crowd. You were the ones who the, the animals were killed for, and your sins were forgiven, but we didn't care about anybody else. And now along comes our Savior, Jesus, and what's he say? He sprinkles the nations. He takes that grace towards everyone. Every single person in this world, God's grace is extended towards. God's opened door to the world through Jesus. Think of that. Think of how divided we are, and there's this one and that one, and insiders and outsiders, and I'm right and they're wrong, and Jesus gets rid of every bit of that. The result? The text tells them. If you do this right, if you follow this job description, and you sprinkle the nations with grace, even the kings are going to shut up. They're not going to know what to say. So think of Holy Week. They're mocking our Savior. They're making fun of him. We got this guy, this rabble-rouser who said these weird things and, and treats these Romans in ways when we're trying to just kick the Romans out of here. And now they finally got him, and they nailed him to a cross. And they said that the guards are casting lots for his, his garments, and they're hurling insults at him. Their mouths aren't very shut until he utters these words, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And he shut them up with a sentence. And that's what he was told. That's how you're going to know you're being the successful Savior. Because if you live a different way, people are going to be speechless. What do you do, folks, if you have somebody in your life who's really awful to you, and you say, I'm praying for you, and I love you, and what can I do to help you? That's what we're asked to do. The Apostle Paul says it's called heaping burning coals on people. Because people don't know what to do if a genuine Christian responds with love and grace and forgiveness. That's what our Savior did, and that's what we're asked to do. So that's his job description. What happens when we practice grace and forgiveness? We're in the time of Lent, and people talk about giving things up. I'd like us to give something up for Lent. One resentment. Just one resentment. Just one person in our lives that we struggle with, one person that we have a hard time with, let's give up that resentment and let's sprinkle them with love and forgiveness and grace. Let's pray for people who are difficult in our lives. Let's realize that we serve a Savior who had a job description that we didn't write. You got me, folks? We didn't write it. Because had we written it, it would have had us in it. And it would have been according to our selfish needs, and that's not who God is. God cares about this world. For God so loved this world that he sent his son. 
And our marching orders in this world are to follow the one who lived a way that we can't even fathom. But when we start living that way, we start realizing what real success is. Amen? Real success. We start not worrying how much we look good on the outside, but rather inwardly. Are we following our Savior? Is the Holy Spirit transforming our lives? And we get down on our knees and we have a little bit of repentance in our life. We evaluate our lives at the end of the day and we say, you know, I'm going to take a personal inventory today and I did as good as I could have done, but tomorrow I know I can do better. And then we start sprinkling grace everywhere we go. Grace and forgiveness. There are far too many people in this world who feel judged and they think the only thing that we are as Christians are people who look down at them and think we're better. And that's not who our Savior is. In the next few weeks, we're looking at an interesting text, the suffering servant, the one who came to this world to give his life as a ransom for our salvation, to clean up all the crap in our lives, all the negative and bad stuff that you and I have done. If we just give it to him, we're completely forgiven, and we have a new opportunity to live, and now we have a job description, and our job description is to learn to live more like him and to let the Holy Spirit transform us. I invite you to be on this journey. And let us pray that God will help us to realize that we didn't write the job description, and we didn't need to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your goodness and your forgiveness. Thank you for the fact that you care so deeply about this world that you didn't come into this world to impress on chariots or having more than someone else. You came in as a humble servant, as a baby born in, laid in a feeding trough, as a savior who touched lepers and cared for those who were unlovable, and you showed love. Sometimes we feel unlovable and we feel like nobody cares about us. Help us know that Jesus loves us but help us be transformed from the inside out that we could learn to live the way that Jesus lived. I pray that for our church. Help us to be a place where grace exudes and, and we can just say, how can we serve and how can we help and how can we be Jesus to this world? And I pray, Father, that this congregation, every family and every individual would be on Team Jesus, in whose name we pray.